0: Scripture reading today is Matthew chapter twenty-seven, verses forty-five through fifty. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani?" That is, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, "This man is calling for Elijah." Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Matthew chapter 27, we have the record of Jesus' crucifixion. And over the past couple of months, we have been looking at several of the statements that Jesus made while hanging on the cross. And perhaps the statement that is found in verse 46 of Matthew, the 27th chapter, When Jesus cried out saying, Eli, Eli lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Perhaps no other words that Jesus uttered were more confusing or more troubling to us in trying to arrive at exactly what did Jesus mean by stating these words. But I would submit to you, while they might be somewhat confusing to us, they can also give us a glimpse to the inner turmoil that Jesus was enduring and that He was suffering. As we have looked at some of the words that Jesus said, beginning at about 9 a.m. until 12 p.m., Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, also in verse 43, whenever he was conversing with the thief, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Then we have considered the statement whenever he said, Behold your mother. And then from the hours of darkness, which a few weeks ago we had Brother Jeff Asher, who was with us one Sunday, and he taught a lesson on that darkness that covered the earth at the time. Then you have, beginning at about 3 p.m., when Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And the words that Jesus uttered on the cross, especially this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, has generated a lot of discussion, a lot of confusion, but it is showing the despair that Jesus endured. A despair, though, that I would submit to you that goes beyond just the despair that he felt then, it turns into something glorious a despair that he was enduring a pain and an anguish that he endured for you and for me and we see that this is a lament that he was engaged in that he was feeling the pain and the anguish if you just notice the entire context here of Jesus while he was on the cross in Matthew chapter 27 And beginning in verse 42, that He was hearing people point to Him and say, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in Him. I believe that had to be a great temptation for Jesus. That here are people saying, We have rejected You. We have wanted You on the cross. We were shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! But now, if he would save himself and do this great and mighty powerful thing, then we'll believe. That will be the thing that convinces us. I believe that had to be a great temptation for our Lord to hear those words. Then they heard him mocking. And this is important that Matthew ties in the words from Psalm 22. In verse 43, he says, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Now, if he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. If he is really who he has claimed to be, then God should deliver him. In verse 44, the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him. With the same words. To add insult to injury, you have... The lowlifes that are even jumping on the bandwagon to mock and to ridicule. And it is within that framework that I think the Hebrew writer says rightly in Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 2, talking about Jesus, how we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus had to endure all of this. And while he is enduring that, he makes this statement My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those words on face value may not seem all that difficult for us, but there have been many that have taken those words and I think have gone well beyond the intended meaning of them. For instance, John Calvin said, in order that Christ might satisfy for us, it was necessary that He should be placed as a guilty person At the judgment seat of God. That Calvin, as he was understanding this, that all the sins of the world were imputed and placed on Jesus. And so the father, whenever he looked on Jesus, that he only saw the worst and the vilest of sinners. And I've heard many of our brethren even make similar kinds of statements. I've heard a well-respected brother that said hell came to the cross because Jesus had to suffer the pain and the anguish for sin and the punishment for sin. And I think we need to be reminded that the punishment for sin is eternal damnation. Not something that could have been experienced in just a few hours of time. The punishment was not physical death for sin. The punishment for sin is eternal spiritual separation from God. And so I believe John Calvin and others have gone too far. Because what Peter says that talking about Jesus and His sacrifice. That He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. Whenever people were reviling and mocking Him, He did not revile in return. He did not mock in return. So we cannot go so far as to believe and think that Jesus was somehow the worst of sinners on the cross. Some have said that this was a cry of dereliction. That he was completely and utterly forsaken and abandoned by God. And that the father was literally absent from the consciousness of his son and vice versa. That there was no thought that God the father had for his son and the son could not find the Father. I think that goes to an absurdity that would shake the very foundations of what it means to be God. That God can forget who God is. I I think that presents some problems. And so no matter what we might believe about these words, I think we have to keep the following in mind that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He said, Behold, an hour is coming and it has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave Me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with Me. That Jesus was able to go to the cross and endure the cross because He understood in whatever way the Father was going to be with Him as He was being a faithful Son, Even when the disciples were scattered at the time of His betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion, Jesus was not alone because the Father was with Him. And I think Jesus took comfort in those words. And so whatever Jesus meant here in Matthew chapter 27, in this lament that He is feeling the anguish and the pain of the cross, and enduring the mocking. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46, he quotes from the Psalms. That's something that we need to recognize. That Jesus' statement, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is a quotation from Psalm chapter 22. And I told you in verse 43, whenever they... Are mocking, and they say, He trusts in God, let God rescue him. I told you to remember that that is also a quotation from Psalm 22. That Matthew sort of takes Psalm 22 and intermingles it with his inspired words by the Holy Spirit and shows how they. Fit together, And so whatever it is, I believe we have to recognize that Psalm 22 holds the key to a faithful interpretation of what Jesus meant by these words. And Psalm 22 is a psalm that turns from despair. It begins with despair. But it turns from despair to faith and ultimately to hope. And I would also suggest to you that Jesus did not quote this just out of thin air and made an improper application to it. That He did not take this verse out of its context. He would have understood that as quoting the Scriptures, that there was a context to these words that David penned so long ago. And so I hope that you have your Bibles open or your screens where you can turn to Psalm 22 because I want to spend a little bit of our time here in Psalm 22 because I believe Psalm 22 begins to give us the answer to whatever Jesus was enduring and some of the things that He was in feeling at this time. And you might, if you have this ability, bookmark Matthew chapter 27 or you might, if you like, to fold the pages sometimes like I do where you can easily just kind of flip back and forth because what you will see that as Matthew has interlaced Matthew 27 and Psalm 22 together in verses 39 through 44, you see that that fulfills the words of Psalm 22 and verse 8. And verse 39 in particular of Matthew's account is a fulfillment of Psalm 22 verses 13 through 16. And then in Matthew 27 and verse 35, it fulfills Psalm 22 and verse 18. And then as Jesus is hanging on the cross, you have Jesus in His own words, quoting Psalm 22 and verse 1. And so I don't think it is a stretch of the imagination to recognize that Psalm 22 is critical to understanding what Matthew is presenting here as Jesus Hangs from the cross. And so in Psalm 22, as I mentioned, it begins with this despair from doubt. In Matthew 22 and verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. And so what you see, at David, as he pins these words, he's recognizing that there is a struggle that is going on. There is pain. There's anguish. Then it looks as if God is not there and yet here He is. He's crying out. And He says, when Israel cried out, you delivered. Now I'm crying out and I don't see you. I don't hear you. When will you answer? You continue on in the psalm in verse 9. Yet you are He who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. You see that the psalmist is not getting rid of his faith. While he may be suffering some doubts or some some pain, and that he is beginning to wonder, when are you going to deliver me? When are you going to hear my words? When are you going to answer my prayer? This is not a man who is turning away from faith. And he asks and he pleads that God would not be far away from him. If you notice in verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. In verse 19, but you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. What this psalm is, is an elaborate prayer. Not of doubt, but of faith. Here is someone who is struggling, who is going through pain, who has been beaten and mocked and abused. You see what they are doing. In verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands, and my feet. These people have utterly rejected the one that's pictured in this psalm. And the psalm is a prayer that is asking God to hear, to listen, to deliver. No wonder Jesus would think about these words. What better psalm to turn to to ask for divine assistance? In verse 20, deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild ox and you answer me. He's asking for deliverance. He's asking for salvation. He asks for God to hear His prayer and to answer Him. And Psalm 22, while it pictures this one who is being persecuted, and I believe in a very messianic way has an application that is for Jesus. David has in mind... Kind of like Isaiah 53, He's looking to the cross. And the one who is pinning these words, David, as he is expressing the pain and the anguish, the agony that someone would be enduring in such a circumstance. He comes to this hope-filled answer and conclusion. Then in verse 22, you see the resolve. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. This is not someone who's ready to abandon faith in God. This is someone who is clinging to God. In verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear Him. And what the psalm concludes with really is this fact that God does not abandon the afflicted. In verse 24, For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him for help, He heard. He heard the words I think that is so important for us to see. And this psalm acknowledges that God would hear the cries, the pain, and the agony of his son while he was on the cross. You think about what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 in the days of his flesh, He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the One able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His piety. And so what you see in Psalm 22, it's this elaborate prayer of this One who is going through pain and anguish, who is being persecuted, who is being killed. And there's hope that even though there's pain and suffering right now, there is hope to come. And it is within that context, I think we need to go back to Matthew chapter 27 to recognize that is how Jesus is employing this psalm. And when you think about what was going on at the cross, and I have oftentimes wondered what would I be thinking if I were there? If I were seeing Jesus hang upon the cross, what would my thoughts be? And I would hope that I could say I believe that's the Son of God. But I have to come back to reality and I have to recognize even the twelve who were with Him for three and a half years They were not there. They were not there. Because the cross looked like the end. That the cross offered some illusions. I think that word might be Difficult for some people, but illusion is defined as the state or fact of being intellectually deceived or misled. Perception of something objectively existing in such a way as to cause misinterpretation of its actual cause. That's Mr. Webster for you. And you think about what the cross represented, it was the place where criminals were put to death. It was where the vilest of people were put to death. So much so that even Roman citizens could not be killed by crucifixion. I'm reminded of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God The cross looks like one thing for some people. Perhaps illusion number one is that it looked like Jesus is being rejected by God for blasphemy. Turning back to Matthew 27. In Matthew chapter 27 and in verse 39 when the people are there passing by hurling abuse at Him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days... Save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. They did not understand what Jesus' words meant, did they? But they thought those were blasphemous words. In verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And if you were just an innocent bystander, you might hear what people were saying about this man, Jesus, on the cross. And you might say, yeah, he needs to be put to death. He's a blasphemer. That could happen because it looks that way. Or maybe it looks like Jesus just doesn't have any power, that he just has empty words. Words that could not save anyone because He could not save Himself. That's what they are accusing Him of in verse 42. He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him now come down from the cross and we will believe in Him. Well, He doesn't have any real power to save anyone if He can't save Himself. (coughs) That's one, one conclusion you could walk away with. Or, maybe you see think no king would really actually be put to death. Jesus certainly couldn't be a king. Because they would not put a king like that on a cross. Or if He is a king, then He's not a very good king. He's not a very powerful king. And yet, the inscription above His head, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That's exactly why they put that there. They wanted to try to squash any notion that Jesus was a real King. They wanted people to believe the illusion. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Perishing. It looks as something that is utter defeat. Looks like Satan wins. But if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 18, or chapter 1, rather, there's not 18 chapters in 1 Corinthians. <laughs> I'm sorry, I misspoke there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and in verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then the word of the Gospel is this word of Jesus and Him crucified. And it is the power of God unto salvation. In verse 21, he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased, through the foolishness of the message preached, to save those who believe. that The Gospel, it appears as foolishness. It's an illusion to many people that are lost. They don't understand it. They don't grasp the true significance behind the cross. There is a reality that we need to accept and believe about the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you will, turn with me to the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews, the second chapter. In Hebrews chapter 2, and in verse 17. Notice what the Hebrew writer says Therefore, he that is Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation, that's a big word. That He was the sin sacrifice. That when Jesus hung upon the cross and offered His body and His blood and His very life, God saw His act of obedience. He saw Him hang upon the cross and He said, that satisfies any requirement that I have. When John saw Jesus come to him to be baptized by Him, He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you are a Jew and you understand the book of Leviticus, then you understand what that means, don't you? You understand that sin requires a sacrifice and not just any sacrifice, but a blood sacrifice. And there is no equivalency. I think we get into problems whenever we try to attach some sort of mathematical sort of equation to it. It's not a mathematics equation that we need to be trying to solve. There is no way that in the Old Testament under the Old Testament system that a lamb even a perfect lamb would be equal to a violation of the law of God. There's no way that that actually corresponds in any significant way. It's by grace that God is willing to forgive based on a blood sacrifice. That's what the Hebrew writer says in verse 9, but we do see him who was made a little lower for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory, and honor, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. By the grace of God. It's not about mathematics. How does one man die for the sins of the whole world? It's not about math. It's about grace. Based upon the perfect and the sinless sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God was satisfied. And well pleased to establish a new covenant, a new and living way for us to be able to come to God, to have our consciences cleansed. In Hebrews chapter 9, in Hebrews chapter 9 and in verse 16, the Hebrew writer says, For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded. That the Old Covenant was established based upon the offering of a sacrifice and of blood. The people were sprinkled with it. In verse 24, he talks about Christ though. He says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that He would offer Himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not His own. His point is that Jesus offered Himself once. One time for all time. And that pleased God. And there's a lot about the atonement and the sacrifice of Jesus that I don't understand. I don't think many of us would understand it. We don't understand how one righteous and perfect man died for the sins of the whole whole world. The only answer that I can come to is that it was by the grace of God. And While the cross looked like despair and anguish, it was in what we would see, we would see a loss. We would see that this man has lost. He has been put to death, and that's the end. But Jesus was raised from the dead. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, or Acts chapter 2, and in verse 22, when Peter and the apostles were preaching, they said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him. That Jesus, while he died on that cross, now the cross becomes a symbol of victory and of hope. And that's what I love about our great and awesome God. Is that he can take the things of this world, the foolishness of this world, and he can turn it on its head. And that symbol of pain and agony that Jesus was enduring, something that He had to endure, the Hebrew writer told us. Filled with the pain, the anguish, and the agony of not only dying, but dying in a very cruel way, being mocked, being beaten, Feeling forsaken. While he was on the cross, Jesus did not lose sight that God would indeed raise him up. And that's why I believe the Apostle Paul was able to say in Galatians chapter 6 but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That now the cross has become this positive symbol for us. That we have separated ourselves from the world and the world from us. And now I can boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's hope. It's victory. Because Jesus defeated Satan and sin through His death. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Words of despair, just as Psalm 22 described them. Psalm 22 ends... And gives us an answer of hope that God would deliver His Son. In which that is what the Gospel preached is a message about how Jesus did not remain in the grave. He was raised from the dead. This morning we were led in the old rugged cross. It's not that we are worshiping the symbol or the idea of death and crucifixion. It's what the cross represents. And we recognize that the cross, while it looked hopeless, now it's filled with hope. It looked as if we were beaten. But through the cross, And through the resurrection, there is a Savior. A Savior who has come. Who offers forgiveness of sins. The words of Jesus still speak to us. We hear the cry and the bitterness of despair and anguish. But we see that He never doubted in God's plan. He did not shirk from what He was willing to do. He kept entrusting himself to his Father that God would deliver him. And God offers the same hope of redemption and deliverance for us too. When we think we are alone, when we think sin has beaten us, our God is a God of deliverance. Sin is a place of loneliness, it's a place of despair. As many have said, and I know even here, that sin grows and thrives in darkness. When we sin, we feel that darkness. When we look at the cross, you might think there was darkness. And there was. But then there is hope. Because of Jesus and His sacrifice. And because God is gracious. God can turn the darkness and the despair of even your sin and He can defeat it. He can give you hope. He can give you eternal life. You need to turn away from your sin. You need to come to Him. You need to be baptized. Into Christ, to crucify yourself to the world, to separate yourself from the world and join in Christ's death, burial, and in his resurrection so that you can have your sins washed away and be forgiven and be given new life. And maybe it is that you have done that, but you have not been living faithfully for the Lord. Would you come back to the cross this morning, submitting yourself? To Jesus, come confess your sins and pray that God would forgive you. If we can help you in any way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?